please open your Bibles to John 11, 45 through 57. Using the Pew Bible, you will find the reading on pages on page 898. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but only to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would uh, open our ears, our eyes, and yes, our hearts, that we might um, receive your word. And Lord, help us to be lot, uh, not like the man who looks at himself in a mirror, immediately going away, forgets what he looks like, but rather help us to put your word into practice by the power of your spirit at work within us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you're visiting with us, it is our um, practice to work our way uh, expositionally through books of the Bible, and so we are 
in and have been for quite a while in John in the Gospel of John. We are finishing up uh, John chapter 11 this morning. That being said, uh, let me begin my sermon by saying our congregation is not very uh, politically active as a congregation. Uh, we speak. Uh, we will speak to moral issues that uh, are also in the political arena. Uh, for instance, we've always been uh, involved in the right to life movement uh, in our nation and have uh, supported the Pregnancy Care Center as an expression of our belief that abortion is a national sin. But by and large, we do not want to enter into the political sphere um, as a church. As our Book of Church Order states, the church and the state are planets moving in concentric orbits. As Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Our kingdom is Christ's kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are pilgrims and strangers in this world. We agree with the psalmist in Psalm 118, who said it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So we are not um, very politically active as a congregation. But... Our congregation is very educated politically. We know what's going on. We follow the news. We watch cable news channels or listen to talk radio. Uh, we read the op-ed pages uh, in our newspapers. We exercise our right to vote. As citizens, some of us are involved in the political processes to one degree or another. Um, I imagine several of us contact our politicians to express our opinions on various issues. And it is proper that we be involved in political issues as Christian citizens. God is sovereign everywhere. He's not just sovereign in the church. His rule extends over everything, even into the political sphere. Therefore, God's Word is the ultimate rule and the ultimate uh, standard of conduct in the political sphere. Um, and we are called as Christian citizens to bring God's rule to bear upon the political processes. In fact, we are not loving our neighbors if we take a completely hands-off approach to politics and let our politicians run amok without holding them accountable to govern according to God's God standards of righteousness. If we simply take a hands-off approach, our society will suffer. People will be taken advantage of. The poor will be mistreated. And injustice will prevail. We are called to be salt and light in the dark world in which we live as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As politically educated and politically attentive people, very few of us are, very, are, are happy at all with the political situation uh, at present in our nation. 
I know many of you are concerned that very foundational issues are, are, are under assault. And these issues are foundational because they cut to the very essence of what it means to be a free and democratic society. Many of you have expressed concerns that the rule of law, which is the backbone of a just society, is being weakened. And that several of the amendments which make up the Bill of Rights are also being attacked. This passage of Scripture this morning that we've read uh, and are going to be studying this morning is very timely for us as believers. It will remind us why our government, or any government for that matter, will always be drifting away from righteousness and from justice. I think it will help us remember that we are not living in a uniquely wicked period of history. Every generation thinks that it just can't get any worse than what it is. Um, you know, what we're experiencing, no other generation has ever experienced. But we'll be reminded that uh, as bad as we think we have it now, other generations have had it worse. And most of all, this passage will remind us that in spite of all appearances, God is in control and we can, we can place our complete trust in Him and not in princes. I've got an outline on the back of the bulletin. We're going to skip over point one this morning. Not because I'm concerned about time. I'm not concerned about time at all this morning. <laughs> um, rather, point one is factually wrong. I outline. I made my outline, and then I got to thinking. And usually, when I get to thinking after I've made a decision, that's usually a bad thing. But this ended up being a good thing because I realized that I was wrong. Um, government. The the reason for government here in this world is not because of sin, as I stated in the first point. So we're going to skip over that. Um, I realized that governmental um, that there would have been governmental structures um, to promote the common interest and general welfare of mankind, even if Adam had not sinned. I realized as I thought about it that people of various gifts would likely hold uh, positions of leadership uh, corresponding to their gifts. And then I also remembered that the apostles will rule in heaven according to Matthew 19. So if there's government in heaven, then it cannot only arise in response to sin. So that being said, we're just going to jump right into point two. And point two is the problem with government is sin. And I can say definitely that that is true. <laughs> uh, you will remember that the major event of John chapter 11 was the resurrection of Lazarus. Many people witnessed this miracle. All the mourners, uh, many of them from Jerusalem, they followed Mary out of the house. They were there visiting with Mary and Martha, mourning with them. Well, when Jesus came and then uh, Martha spoke with Jesus and then Mary found out that Jesus was there and she rushed out of the house, everybody followed her. And then uh, after she spoke with Jesus, they then went to the tomb. 
these people followed her to the tomb, um, to the cave where Lazarus was buried. And they saw Lazarus after they removed that stone. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. They saw Lazarus come stumbling out of that cave. They likely smelled the stench of death that was still clinging to his clothes, even though Lazarus was very much alive. Many of the Jews did what we would expect that we would have done had we witnessed such a miracle. They placed their trust in Jesus Christ, verse 45. But then look at verse 46. In verse 46 it says, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Remember, Bethany's only two miles away from Jerusalem. And these people saw this great miracle. But instead of trusting in Jesus, they run off to go squeal on Jesus, to go tattle on Him and tell the Pharisees what He has done. Why don't they trust in Jesus? Well, they don't trust in Jesus. Simply put, because they do not like Him. They made a beeline for the Pharisees. You know, this is just amazing. Jesus has never done anything but that which is good and kind. His whole life was one of self-denying goodness. His gospel was a gospel of mercy, love, peace, truth. Yet there are many who will accuse Him of all manners of evil and wickedness. They did it then, they continue to do it today. When the Pharisees heard the reports, well, this was disturbing to them. They called together the nation's top religious council. Look at verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The council's in complete confusion. What are they going to do about Jesus? Yet they are absolutely sure that He has performed the miracles. You see here, they're not denying that He did the miracles. In fact, many of them saw Him do the miracles. They saw the miracles that He had performed in Jerusalem. And here, now all these people are streaming from Bethany and saying, you're not going to believe what Jesus just did. Lazarus, who we knew to be dead, and dead for four days. Jesus called him forth from the grave, and Lazarus obeyed. And so they cannot deny that Jesus is doing these miraculous signs. So even though they're confused about what to do about Jesus, they are united in their opinion that Jesus is a problem. And I've been thinking about this actually a, a little bit more. Um, I, I was wondering, was Nicodemus in this council? I imagine he was. I imagine he kept his mouth shut. In fact, I imagine that he was here and we know about the, the council's uh, deliberations because later he probably, uh, as he, it looks as if he became a believer, 
John chapter 3, remember the original Nick at, Nick at night. Uh, he he uh, probably then uh, relayed what happened in this council meeting to John, and so that's how we know what happened in this council meeting. And so, they have a problem. Jesus is their problem. Look at verse 48. It highlights their dilemma. They said, if we let Him go on like this, performing miracles, doing wonderful and merciful things, uh, if we let Him go on like this, everyone will believe in Him. Oh, horrors. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Bingo. <laughs> what is wrong with Washington, D.C. and our national political situation? Sinful self-interest. There may be some good and selfless politicians in, in Washington, D.C., but the vast majority are driven by various degrees of sinful self-interest. And we are feeling the pain. This raises the question, how do we conduct ourselves as Christian citizens when our political situation is so obviously unrighteous in so many respects? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 is very clear. It gives us our marching orders. Peter said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's our marching orders. How do we live as, as Christians in an evil society? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. All government since the fall is populated with fallen human beings. No government is going to be perfect. No human government is going to be free from self-interest. Even if we joined the government and we were the only ones in government, there would still be sinful self-interest at play because we are sinners. Every human government will move in the opposite direction of righteousness and justice. Rare has been the government that acted in a, in a disinterested manner in order to bless the population over which it governs. Usually a government has to be shamed or threatened very publicly before it will make changes that move toward righteousness. All the Old Testament prophets had to stand against the kings of Israel, had to challenge them, because the kings were moving toward sinful self-interest and away from righteousness. And we all remember the college student in Tiananmen Square, those of us who were old enough, um, as he stood all alone in front of those Chinese tanks 
and the tank stopped. And the, the Chinese government was shamed on the national stage and backed away in that instance. That's why the right to assemble is so important to the, to the American system. So that we can challenge our government. That's why our Constitution gives us that right. So that government will not grow in the direction in which all governments grow towards selfish self-interest, but rather it puts a check in the balance for the power of the people to assemble and challenge our government. Now, returning to our text, verses 49 through 53 are some of the most stunning verses in all of Scripture. And we do encourage you to keep your Bible open um, as uh, we work our way through the sermon so that you can check and see what I'm saying, so that you can also hear from God Himself as you read His Word. Verse 49 through 53, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. Let me read that again. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas that we are reading about. He was the high priest. He appears in Jewish and also in Roman histories of the time. He had enormous power and influence. And it is very interesting that God gave Caiaphas a prophecy that year that Jesus would die for the nation, not only the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. In other words, would die for the Gentiles. We are here this morning, the vast majority of us as Gentiles, because what Caiaphas, wicked Caiaphas, uh, prophesied came true. Jesus Christ died for the nation of Israel and died for the children of God scattered abroad. And God, by His Gospel and by the power of His Spirit, has gathered us and we are here this morning as it says here, children of God, because Jesus died for us. But Caiaphas' self-interest caused him to uh, radically misinterpret uh, what this prophecy meant. And so, instead of understanding this prophecy, uh, he said we should begin to plot to kill Jesus. And Caiaphas is ruthless in the way then that he wields his power. But it's also ironic that this man, who we're going to see later in, in the Gospel of John, was cast into the lowest depths of hell, utters one of the clearest statements on the substitutionary atonement that has ever been expressed in the Bible. This one man is going to die 
for the nation of Israel and is going to die for the scattered people of God. This is the substitutionary atonement. If you are here this morning and don't understand the Gospel, Caiaphas is preaching to you. That is the irony. God uses the most bent and broken of sticks to draw a straight line. In fact, I even, uh, as I pray, oftentimes I say, Lord, why are you using me to be a preacher? Um, And God uses crooked sticks to draw His straight lines. And uh, here, He is using Caiaphas. So if He can use Caiaphas, He can use me, and that encourages me. But anyway, here's Caiaphas. And he is saying, if you don't understand the Gospel, Jesus Christ came here to earth to die in order that you might be gathered to God. That's the substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the substitute. He came who knew no sin to become sin for us in order that He might die for sinners. Your salvation is not about any good works you can do. Your salvation is not about any good intentions that you have in your heart. Your salvation is about Jesus Christ. Trust in Him who died in your place. Trust in Him who Caiaphas didn't realize this. But He was the resurrection and the life who had life in Himself who rose from the dead for our justification. Trust in Him, not in yourselves. That is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. Well, the result of Caiaphas' plotting with the religious council is seen in verses uh, 53 and 54. So here's the result. From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So, this awful result, they are plotting to kill Jesus. But you know what? We know that God is steering these events perfectly and precisely to His good, wise, and holy purposes. In fact, the early Christians confessed this in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. They said, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and we could add Caiaphas here, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to happen. And so here's Caiaphas plotting with the religious council, and they end up doing exactly, perfectly, what God had predestined before the foundation of the world should happen. And this is where I want us to land this morning as we consider this passage. Yes, our government is self-interest, is, is uh, sinful and self-interested. And yes, it appears to be getting worse. 
Who knows? Maybe our country will go the way of the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire and so many other world powers that have vanished from the face of the earth. But our hope is not in politics or in politicians. We see on cable news that some vote is before Congress and the talking heads breathlessly tell us that the result of this vote is going to alter forevermore the direction of our country. The result of the vote will lead us into a paradise or into a fate far worse than hell itself. And it's tempting to get caught up in all that. Listen, our hope is in the Gospel and in the triumph of King Jesus. If your hope is in some politician or in some political party, then your hope is fleeting and bound to be dashed against the jagged rock of man's all-consuming self-interest. Our allegiance is to the Kingdom of God. Our nation may go down the tubes, but the Gospel will thrive elsewhere. Our nation may turn into communist China where all our freedoms are removed and our faith is outlawed, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will never be changed, nor will it be destroyed. God is working out His will, even in spite of us. It could be that we could get so bad that here in America that we need to rely on the Chinese missionaries to come preach the gospel to us. So be it. I believe in the worldwide conquest of the gospel. I've said this uh, on different occasions. I know it is a minority view in our congregation and in our denomination. So ultimately, I believe that God will conquer China. I believe that God will conquer all the Muslim nations that have outlawed the gospel. I believe that the power of God, um, I believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe wherever they live, however hardened their country and their laws and their governments may be against the gospel. If the gospel no longer thrives in America one day, I believe that it will later in the future, maybe not in my children's 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 lifetime, but I believe in the future that the glory of the Lord will, will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And... Uh, Politicians can lie and plot their self-interested plans just like Caiaphas and the religious council did against Jesus. But rest assured, our sovereign God will accomplish all His purposes just as He has planned to do. And even if I am wrong about the gospel filling the earth as the waters fill the sea on this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, it still doesn't change the fact that God will accomplish all His purposes just as He has planned to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we place all our trust in You. Help us never to trust in princes. I ask that You would renew our belief in the power of the Gospel that we ourselves would live according to it, that we ourselves would rely on You, that we ourselves would believe 
that You love us despite all appearances and that we would, um, as Your children, crawl up in Your fatherly arms and take You as our refuge when we are tempted to trust in anything else. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.